it's a shockingly effective remake of a classic. Today I'm talking about All Quiet on the Western Front. This is Scott's F-Indulgent Movie Podcast. movie friends, welcome to Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. I am Scott, and today I'm talking about the recent uh, Netflix release, which is All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a, kind of a reimagining of, of the famous novel in the original film, came, uh, came from Germany, which is appropriate, all things considered, uh, produced by Daniel Bruhl, who you might recognize from Inglorious Bastards and other movies. But this one is fantastic. It is rough, but rough in the right ways. So without further ado, let's get started. There's an unspoken rule in movie making that some films are off-limits. Films that are either so iconic, influential, or well-known that attempting to remake or reimagine them is not only considered a fool's errand, but may also be deemed an insult to the medium. Sure, you can make a bad sequel to Chinatown or Jaws, but remaking either of the original films isn't going to fly. So you'd be forgiven for thinking that a remake of All Quiet on the Western Front is a bad idea, especially since American studios did the same things in the 70s with mixed results. But as it turns out, director Edward Berger and company got a great idea for updating the 1930 original. The movie centers around Paul, a 17-year-old kid who enthusiastically joins the German war effort for glory and country. But after a harrowing introduction into combat, Paul quickly becomes disenchanted with battlefield heroics. He instead focuses on survival with the hope that the German high command will end the conflict before he's struck down. All Quiet on the Western Front might be one of the best anti-war movies in recent memory. Pulling from timeless source material like the novel of the same name doesn't hurt, but where this take on the story shines is in the subtle differences that amplify different aspects of war and its impact. So today I'm going to go through what this movie does differently compared to previous versions and why it works so well. And we'll start with Paul. Paul is the point of view character for the audience. He's our bright faced young man who is shattered by combat and goes from an enthusiastic would be fighter to the equivalent of an old man in almost no time at all. All of which is amplified by being in his head throughout the novel or via voiceover narration. And that's the first film's first big change. Paul isn't narrating. In fact, no one is. Instead, the film lets the horrific nature of each situation speak for itself, whether it is the carnage of combat, the aftermath of an accident, or even the famous stabbing of a French soldier in the middle of no man's land. And I think this is really effective, because it means the audience can't distance themselves from what's happening. We're not hearing about Paul's friends dying. We see their corpses and piece together what happened like Paul does. Likewise, the actor playing Paul, Felix Kramerer, looks 17. Much like its fellow anti-war World War I movie, 1917, the age of the actors, or their lack of age, is a perpetual vis visual reminder of the people who are sent to do the fighting, especially the longer the fighting goes on and as the body count rises. You might be able to look at someone like the grizzled soldier Cat and say, okay, he's a trained and experienced soldier, this makes sense. But seeing Paul's boyish, boyish face covered in mud and blood and witnessing horror after horror means the audience is begging for this to end. It's also a different look at war, and in particular, World War I. Another big difference in this movie is the plot and framework of the film. The original film and novel does its best to amplify why every part of war and being a soldier is horrifying. 
For instance, Paul and his friends are immediately disenchanted after joining the army, thanks to the petty abuses of a military trainer, which is brought back to amplify the cowardice of higher-ups. We also get Paul's brief return to home, where he feels completely disconnected from the life he once had, and his family. It's all specifically designed to make the reader and audience feel the injustices a soldier deals with even before combat starts. In this version, the training, trip back home, and a lot more are stripped out for two subplots that hammer the movie's real point home. A negotiation between German and French officials for an armistice, and a general who wants to claim as much glory as he possibly can. Each of these has a specific idea it's meant to hammer home, while Paul and company do their level best just to survive. The negotiation between officials is the first step in a disconnect between those fighting and those directing the fighting. Daniel Bruhl's minister clearly wants the carnage to stop as quickly as possible, and does everything he can to reject the notion of honor or giving up too much when the lives of the citizenry are at stake. In a very pointed moment, for instance, a fellow officer who says they need to carry out things with honor is refuted by Bruhl, saying his son is dead. Where's his honor? A point that's made even more bitterly with the German general, who talks about nothing but glory even in the face of defeat. While the men he orders to fight die horribly in a completely avoidable and cyclical bit of combat and a very pointed fight to have anything to resemble real food, the general sits comfortably in a warm mansion in warm lighting, eating and drinking his fill in a uniform covered in medals and orders men to their death. Hard cut to Paul and his friends risking their lives by robbing a French farm of a chicken. In essence, the movie is highlighting what war takes from soldiers and common people. It makes them desperate. It takes their lives. Meanwhile, the rich and powerful remain rich and powerful. As System of a Down once said, why do they always send the poor? And then we get to the combat and visuals. The final aspect that makes this version stand out is the combat, which, to put it mildly, is a meat-grinding horror show. Part of this is the R-rated Saving Private Ryan approach to action, which seemingly goes through a laundry list of terrible ways to die in trench warfare, ranging from a slow bayonet bleed-out to being crushed by a tank or even burned alive via a flamethrower, all of which is put through a desaturated and blue-tinted hue that makes the dirt look dirtier and the blood look darker and bloodier. As I scan my memory of World War I films, this hasn't been done before. Even 1917 keeps some distance from the blood and guts with its PG-13 rating, and the original All Quiet on the Western Front was made in black and white. But this approach makes the juxtaposition between soldier and commander impossible to ignore, whereas visuals like a smoggy morning turned red with the mist of blood via machine gun fire will stick with you. And because Paul's narration isn't there, we're just in this with Paul, like him, praying that this ends as quickly as possible, fighting for our lives. In conclusion, it's an excellent reimagining. A properly better takedown of war and those who want other men to fight in their stead, All Quiet on the Western Front is a masterful reimagining of the classic work. 9 out of 10. This has been Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe.